0: Acts chapter 13, please. Let's pray. Father, thank you. We are thankful for the opportunity to sing together, to pray together, to give, to fellowship together, to study your word. We pray that you would help us to yield ourselves fully to you, help us to learn more and more, to trust you in every realm of our lives. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Have you ever received an empty promise? I'll remind you of one from a political leader um, a few years back. Read my lips. You know what the rest of it was? No new taxes? How'd that, how'd that work out? Not so well? In the course of our lives, we experience many promises that are unfulfilled, some some you expect to not be fulfilled, and then there are some that you hope against hope uh, that that the person means what they said and, and will actually do what they've promised. You think about you know the the husband who's um, experienced challenges with uh, alcohol or drugs. I promise I'll never do it again. Or the the husband who who has had some issues with gambling. I promise I'll never do it again. Or the husband that, that says, you know, I, I, I know that what I did was wrong when I, when I raised my hand to you and hurt you. I'll, I'll never do it again, I promise. And then, and then what happens so many times in those instances, the promise is not, is not held to. It's a very sad and dangerous, scary situation. God warns us about being people who make promises or oaths. He he instructs us rather to be people of integrity. He tells us to let our yes be yes and our no be no. In other words, you don't need to make promises. You don't need to make covenants with people. There are places for covenants like marriage. But if, if if you intend to fulfill some responsibility, do it. Just do it. God, because He is infinitely perfect, makes and keeps His promises. He is never in danger of slipping up on one of His promises. It is our privilege this morning to quickly navigate through Acts chapter 13, starting in verse 13 down to verse 43. Obviously, we're not going to cover that in great detail. We don't have the time, even if we had the entire regular length of our our study time. But because we are celebrating the Lord's Supper, which is the reason for our turning to this text, uh, this will be an abbreviated look at it. One of the things that we notice, all revolving around the idea that God makes and keeps promises, is that there's something significant, and deeper to God's promises. It's a promise of eternal salvation. And so that our time together will be characterized by that expression, God's promised salvation. The first item that we're going to notice after we read the introductory verses is as we get into verse 17 and following, that God's promises have credibility... Because of His actions. God's promises have credibility. Because of His actions. Because God has demonstrated over the course of time that what He says He does and how He acts is right, we can hold certainty that God will do what He says. And so with that in mind, let's start reading in verse 13 of chapter 13. Now Paul and his companions set sail from Paphos and came to Persia in Pamphylia, and John left them and returned to Jerusalem. But they went on from Persia and came to Antioch in Pisidia. And on the Sabbath day, they went into the synagogue and sat down. After reading from the law and the prophets, the rulers of the synagogue sent a message to them saying, Brothers, if you have any word of encouragement for the people... Say it Now, I'd like to read into that a little bit, um, but I I shouldn't, because that really is an introductory formula. After they did the readings of the the, uh, writings and the prophets, they would then, or the the law and the prophets, they would then turn it over to someone who may have prepared something to say about it or thought something about it. That was kind of the way that they would introduce that. I I really like the expression, though, a word of encouragement. A word of encouragement. And, and what we truly see that follows from the Apostle Paul under the inspiration of the Spirit is indeed a word of encouragement. A word to encourage the hearts of those that were there and then many years later to us. Verse 16, so Paul stood up and motioning with his hand, in other words, I got something to say. Not you. And not you. Keep your mouth shut. I got something to say. Probably not quite that rude, but it was his turn. So he motioned with his hands, and here's what he said. Men of Israel, and you who fear God, listen. So, he says, those that are Jews by birth, and those who are God-fearers, that is a technical term for those that were following along with the, the ideas of Judaism, but they had not yet come to the place where they were willing to be circumcised. That's a God-fearer. So he says, those of you that are, that are adherents to Judaism, whether you are actually God's um, the, the seed of Abraham, or if you are the one that, that is considering this proselytization process, I want you to listen. You have something to hear in this, in this word of encouragement. Verse 17. What I want for us to notice as we read from 17 to 27, is I want us to notice all of the acts of God through these verses. The acts of God. And they're just breathtaking. Verse 17. The God of this people Israel, here's the first act, chose our fathers and made the people great. God did this during their stay in the land of Egypt. And with uplifted arm, He led them out of it. So we have three acts. Right in verse 17. Acts of God. These are reasons, folks, for us to trust him. Because these are the kinds of things he does. He chooses out of people for himself. He makes that people to prosper in the ways that he sees fit. And then he leads them out of bondage. Verse 18. And for about 40 years, he put up with them in the wilderness. Now, what does it mean he put up with them? Well, they had some problems, didn't they? How quickly? like, you serious? (laughs) He just delivered you? And like the next day, you're already ready to complain? And yet God in his infinite kindness and mercy opens the Red Sea, causes them to pass through on dry land and the Egyptians to be swallowed up in the sea. We, We know all of these things, right? And then they get on the other side and they're singing the song of Moses, the song of deliverance, and everyone's happy, 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 happy. And then they get tired of manna. Give us quail. Give us some meat. God gives the meat. We're thirsty. You know the whole thing. Oh, we're tired of hearing from Moses. We needed someone else to step up to the plate. You remember it all. And God, time in and time out, faithfully, mercifully, fulfilled His promise to preserve His people. He kept their clothes from wearing out, their sandals from wearing out. He kept them fed. kept them... Um, Saturated, uh, ability to, to have uh, hydrated, I guess is a better way to say that. God took care of them. Verse 19. And after destroying seven nations in the land of Canaan, he gave them their land as an inheritance. So God again is acting. He's, he's giving them the land he promised to Abraham. Verse 20. All this took place about 450 years. And after that, he gave them Judges. Until Samuel the prophet. Now you remember what the judges were were there for, right? They didn't just rule the land. They delivered the people. They were the deliverers. Like many versions of a Savior. They're oppressed. They're afflicted. They mourn. They groan. They cry out. And God delivers them through these judges. This is in the Acts of God. Verse 21. Then they asked for a king. We've got to change. And God gave them Saul, the son of Kish, a man of the tribe of Benjamin, for 40 years. And when he, God, had removed him, he, God, raised up David to be their king, of whom he testified and said, I have found in David, the son of Jesse, a man after my own heart, or a man after my heart, who will do all my will. Listen carefully. Of this man's offspring, God... God has brought to Israel a Savior. A real one, not not a temporary one, not a mini one, not a foreshadow one, like the real deal Savior, Jesus. Listen to what it says. As He promised. As He promised. Just as He promised, he, He did. This is what He does. And we can trust in His promises. He has credibility. His actions... Are always demonstrative of his character. Verse twenty four, before his Jesus coming, John had proclaimed a baptism of repentance to all the people of Israel. And as John was finishing his course, he said, "What do you suppose that I? Or who, uh, what do you suppose that I am? I am not he. No, but behold, after me one is coming, the sandals of whose feet I am not worthy to untie. Brothers, sons of the family of Abraham." and those among you who fear God. So again, he's, he, he has capped off this portion by saying, I'm talking to you that are descendants of Abraham and to those who are willing to come under, under the truthfulness and authority of God's word. Listen, this, I want to tell you something. To us has been sent the message of this salvation. The message of this salvation. Verse 27, for those who live in Jerusalem and their rulers because they did not recognize him, Jesus, nor understand the utterances of the prophets, which are read every Sabbath, fulfilled them by condemning him. In other words, he's saying, you're reading about this Jesus all the time. You've seen what the Word of God says about Jesus. You've seen what God said. You've heard what God said. And yet, you have not understood that this Jesus is the fulfillment of the promises of God and through Him comes... you, You got it. Salvation. Salvation. So we're talking about God's promise, salvation. God's promises have credibility because of His actions. All along the way, God was bringing this plan to fruition, All along the way, God was preserving a people, a people through whom the Messiah would come. And when the Messiah would come, he would rescue them, many of them, and the surrounding nations, many of the people of those surrounding nations. This is what God has done. It's glorious. And that's what we celebrate here today. We celebrate the blood of the covenant. We celebrate the promises fulfilled by God. We celebrate the, the sacrifice of the God man, Jesus Christ, by whose stripes we are healed. We celebrate this. God's promises have credibility because of his actions. Now, as we move a little further, God's promises are based upon the work, his work, through Jesus Christ. Now, it's very important that we recognize the, all the ways that I just communicated that. The attention in verses 28 through 37 is upon Jesus, yes, but even more so upon the one who sent and, and raised Jesus. So listen to the way that this is worded, verse 28 and following. And though they found in him, also what is written in the second psalm, you are my son today, I have begotten you. And as for the fact that he raised him from the dead, no more to return to corruption. He has spoken in this way, I will give you the holy and sure blessings of David. Therefore he says in another psalm, you will not let your holy one see corruption. For David, after he had served uh, the purpose of God in his generation, fell asleep and was led with his fathers and saw corruption. But him whom God, or he whom, God raised up, did not see corruption. So we see this mingling of Jesus' ministry, but a major emphasis upon the work that God is doing. And so as we look at this next section in just for a few minutes, God's promises are based upon His work through Jesus Christ. Now, the Lord Jesus Christ, we recognize from verse 28, and it's, and it's only like by an allusion to this, it's not specifically stated, but I think it's important for us to notice In Jesus' earthly life, because this is the character of God, he was sinless. He was sinless. The impeccability of Jesus Christ. No sin in any way. Had he sinned, if he had sinned, the sacrifice would have been pointless. The sacrifice required a pure, perfect lamb and Jesus as the lamb of god slain before the foundation of the earth was in fact pure that is who he is sinless the bible tells us about his character this way in second corinthians 5:21 for our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of god or as it says in the book of hebrews chapter 4 and verse 15 for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are. What does the rest say? You caught that one. Yet without sin. He was sinless. This, this passage is letting us know. Paul is letting us know as he preaches to the people in Antioch at Pisidia. He was also, the Lord Jesus was crucified and buried That's what it says in verse 29. And when they had carried out all that was written of him. That's an important phrase here because we're talking about the promises of God. Not only did God decree before the foundation of the earth that Jesus would be delivered up for our transgressions, God also recorded it for us before it happened. God told us in his word very clearly that Jesus would be A sacrifice for us. We see it as crucifixion in its outworking, and he would be buried. Why why was this sinless Son of God crucified and buried? Because he was a perfect payment for our sin. A perfect payment for our sin. The Bible says it this way in the book of 1 Peter, chapter 3, and verse 18 For Christ also suffered once. For sins. He suffered once for sins. The righteous, that's him. For the unrighteous, that's me. Anyone else in here? Anyone else in here? He's the righteous one. And he suffered for the unrighteous one. That he might bring us to God. Being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. So, Paul is letting us know that Jesus was sinless, and yet He was crucified on our behalf. He was crucified and buried. He was raised. It tells us in verse thirty. But God raised Him from the dead. Well, what's so important about that? Well, in Romans four twenty five, Paul tells us what's so important about that. It says, "Who was delivered up for our transgressions, or excuse me, our trespasses, and raised." For our justification. Now, we're going to talk about justification in a couple minutes, so I don't want to really dive into it twice. But justification, just know that's our salvation. He was raised for our salvation. He was delivered up because of our trespasses, our sin. He was raised for our justification. That's being made righteous. Paul goes on, not only was he sinless and crucified and buried and raised, he appeared to many in verse 31. It says, "For And for many days he appeared to those who had come up with him from Galilee to Jerusalem, who are now his witnesses to the people. Now this, again, is is attested elsewhere. In, In Acts chapter 1 and verse 3, this great, very... Very specific passage it says this: he presented himself alive to them after his suffer- suffering by many proofs. I like how it says it in others many infallible proofs appearing to them during forty days and speaking about the kingdom of God. Hold your hand here we 're going to come right back, but I want us to see First Corinthians 15 because the things that Paul is, is communicating here in Acts 13 in acts 15 excuse me first Corinthians 15 sorry. In 1 Corinthians 15, Paul communicates as the gospel message. What we've noticed in verses 28, 29, 30 and 31 of Acts 13 is that Christ is sinless. He was crucified, was buried, was raised from the dead, and appeared to many, okay? Those five things. Here in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 in verse 3, It tells us, one of them is implied and the other are explicit. It says, For I delivered to you, as of first importance, what I also received. That Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures. That he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures. Now, so far, we have implied that he was sinless, because the sacrifice would have been useless without it, right? So it's not explicitly stated, but it is implicitly stated. He was sinless, he was crucified, he was buried, and he was raised. Guess what comes next? He appears before many. Look what it says in verse 5 and following. And that he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve, then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, and then to all the apostles. Last of all, as to one and timely born, he appeared to me. Okay, so we, we see this, right? What is the message of 1 Corinthians 15? I declare to you the gospel. In Acts chapter 13, what is he declaring? The gospel. And what is the basis of the gospel? Well, the work of God through Jesus Christ, right? But it's, it is embedded in Old Testament prophecy, which tells you from the beginning, God was laying out for us seeds of, Of the Gospel. The Gospel has been found from the beginning of God's revelation to the end of God's revelation. And God is saying here in this passage, I promised you these things in the records and in actuality, in life, and in time. These things have been fulfilled through my Son, Jesus Christ. He appeared to many. In verses 32 and following, God's promises are fulfilled in Jesus Christ because Jesus Christ is the basis of the gospel. Now, before we read this section, I want to tell you he's about to use three Old Testament prophecies. And we could spend a lot of time on them and we are not going to. We don't have the time to this morning. But know this. These prophecies confirm that Jesus is the promised Messiah that Jesus is the promised messiah and the proof of this promised messiah being Jesus is the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. So start reading with me in verse 32. You follow along, I will read. And we bring to you or bring you the good news. That's another word for the gospel. That what God promised to the fathers, this he has fulfilled to us to us. I wonder who's in the audience? Well, there are the seed of Abraham, right? And there are God-fearers. A God-fearer is not a Jew. So who is the promise fulfilled to? Us. What does that mean? You know the promises were for you if you are one of God's redeemed children. Yes. God gave them to us, their children, By raising Jesus. As also what is written in the second Psalm. You are my son today. I have begotten you. And as for the fact that he raised him from the dead. No more to return to corruption. He has spoken in this way. In other words, God spoke about the resurrection. I will give you the holy and sure blessings of David. Now I'd love to spend some time here. In the the reading of it in the Old Testament. It reads differently than that. It talks about an eternal resurrection covenant that God has made, and that with that eternal covenant there is this steadfast covenant loyalty that God has for His people. It's, it's breathtaking. It's in Isaiah 55. Read verse 3 later. You will, you will be fed if you just read Isaiah 55 3 and, and remember what is being said here. So God is making an eternal promise through Jesus it's a covenant promise that will never be taken away and with it comes an, an unwavering promise from God. Beautiful. Verse 35. Therefore he said, says also in another psalm, you will not let your Holy One see corruption. For David, after he had, had served the purpose of God in his own generation, fell asleep and was laid with his fathers and saw corruption. But he whom God raised up did not see corruption. In other words there was, a, there was a, a first installment to David, but the full, real fulfillment of this is in the person of Jesus Christ. Both Psalm 2 and Psalm 16 are messianic psalms. They're, they're pointing us to, back then, pointing the people to Jesus Christ that was to be, to, to be coming. And for us, as we read Psalm 2 and Psalm 16 and Isaiah 55, they're pointing us back to our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. These promises are fulfilled in Him. So God, his promises are, are certain. They're, they're reliable because of His actions. Secondly, God's promises have been fulfilled through the work, His work, through Jesus Christ. This is good. and he, Paul is telling us this in, this in this sermon in Acts chapter 13. And now as he, he brings it to an application, we notice this concept about God's promise. Listen carefully. Faith. In God's promises results in salvation. Faith results in salvation, but not faith in anything. Faith in God's promises results in salvation. That's what we see in verses 38 and 39. Look what it says. Let it be known to you, therefore, brothers... Who's he talking to? Well, those that are there, that are the seed of Abraham, right? And... The God-fearers, those that recognize God to be true and His Word to be true, those that are placing themselves under the authority of God's Word, it's to all of them that through this man, Jesus, forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. What do we call that? The Gospel is proclaimed to you. Now, we talked about the Gospel here. He talked about the Gospel back in verse 32, and we bring you the good news Right? Now go back to verse 26. Brothers, sons of the family of Abraham and those among you who fear God, to us has been sent the message of this salvation. What is the message of this salvation? The gospel! So he's just, It's riddled. This is riddled with, with the gospel. Acts 13. And Acts 13 is based upon the Old Testament. What does that tell you about the Old Testament? It's riddled with the gospel. God's saving hand. God's redeeming work. He's been doing it since the beginning. It's glorious. We can trust Him. He always fulfills His word. God's promised salvation arised in the person of Jesus. Listen to what it says in verse 39. This is, this is gospel truth. It's food for our soul and it's a joy to our mind. And by him, everyone who believes is freed, freed from everything from which you could not be freed by the law of Moses. Now, what you don't know is the word freed is the, the Greek term, uh, dikaias, is righteousness dikaya'o is to be made righteous or to be justified. Justified. He brings up this concept of justification here in verse 39. Now, he he already had brought, brought it forth earlier. I mentioned I was not going to talk about it at that point, so I have to find it back in the text. Oh, it was when we were in uh, Romans chapter 4 is where the term justification came up. We were in Romans chapter 4 because this resurrection was for our justification. So it wasn't from Acts 13. It was from Romans chapter 4. But the term justification comes up in our text. Just, it's translated free. What does it mean to be justified? Well, there are two main elements of justification. The first element of justification is the removal. The removal of our sin. That's mercy. That's mercy. Uh, another Biblical term, doctrinal term, is remission. It means to, to take that sin and to, to remove it forever. And, and when, when, as soon as I start saying, remove sin forever, your mind immediately goes to Psalm 103, right? As far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our transgressions from us. So the first element of justification is the removal of our sin, but that's not the end of it. He didn't just make us as if I'd never sinned. That's only half of the deal. The second half of the deal is grace. One is the removal of something, the other is an addition of something. Grace. God imputes to us or distributes to us Jesus' righteousness. Brings us back to verse 28. He was sinless. They tried to charge Him with sin, but even though they couldn't find any sin, they fabricated something, they they executed Him, even though They couldn't find anything worthy of guilt because there was nothing worthy of guilt in him. He was sinless. So all of the the good deeds, all of the righteous works of the Lord Jesus Christ, every time he obeyed the law of man, every time he obeyed the law of God, every time he obeyed his parents, all of that was in a crude righteousness. It was his righteousness. And we know even though he was righteous, he was condemned as a sinner. Well, justification turns that on its head. Even though I'm a sinner, I am treated as though I am righteous. God takes my sin away because He placed it on the account of Jesus Christ. And when I've trusted Christ, He takes the righteousness of Christ that He earned, that He, he actually lived out, and He places it on my account as though not only am I sinless, I am filled, packed, filled with righteousness. The law of Moses could never do this. Religion could never do this. A church could never do this. A religious leader could never do this. Only God through Christ can do this. Faith in God's promises results in salvation. Forgiveness of sins is proclaimed through Jesus Christ. Are you a sinner? Have you experienced full and permanent forgiveness of your sin. Full and permanent forgiveness of your sin. Belief in the promise of salvation through Jesus Christ results in justification. Full and permanent removal of sin and a gift of full and eternal righteousness. This is is the good news. This is the salvation message that, that Paul is giving here. This is what we call the gospel. The only way that God's salvation comes is through trusting in what God accomplished through Jesus Christ. His sinless life, His substitutionary death, His burial, and His resurrection. Have you experienced full and final forgiveness of sin? Have you received, by God's grace, full and eternal righteousness? This is what happens when God justifies us. Justification comes by faith in Christ alone. Look before me. In these dishes are some unleavened bread and some grape juice. These elements cannot save you. Tradition cannot save you. Ritual cannot save you. This ceremony cannot save you, but what this ceremony reminds us of is that God, through Christ, has done everything necessary to rescue you for himself. Have you trusted Christ?